Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Janice. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good. How you doing? Good. Am I always the early bird? Hey, Jim. Hey. Did you have a good week? I had a great week. I had a moment of impulsivity and joined a jujitsu club. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Have you ever done jujitsu? No. (laughs) For me, it's... 80% 80% socializing and 19% exercise. <laughs> the most benefit to me is just being around other people for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. Hey, do it, Dave. I'm doing. I, uh, I'm not as high up as you guys are, but I'm inspired to know that as I get older, I can keep learning. I didn't say anything about learning. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, Brian. Good evening. Good to Hi, see you. How's everybody? Jim is uh, doing jujitsu now. Look out. I just keep smiling and trying to keep up with these guys. And I go home the next day, I drop my remote like under the recliner, go down and and find it. And and it's like, oh, I got to take a tie and (laughs) all. I can fake it an hour, but when I get home, it's another story. Good to see you, Dan. Hey, everybody. Good to see you, too. Uh, I see Dave at the gym every morning. I got to socialize to exercise. So when I swim, I say, the lady I swim with, she's in her 80s. We swim a length. We stop and talk. Well, it's you old people that hog up the machines forever because you just talk and talk and talk. (laughs) Yeah. The social old people. That's right. That's all we got, man. (laughs) That was a great ending to the readings. Oh, good. Good. Did you like it? I did. It was really, really good. Did you have trouble with it anywhere? Where it says, Paul's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, is not a call for endless social, sexual, and ethnic reordering, but a suspension of this order with its oppressive law-like structure. According to Paul, we do not throw off the law so as to engage the flesh, but we suspend the mode of fleshly identity. So that last sentence or phrase in particular, I found a little, uh, you know, would love to hear what you meant by that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of key. And I may be uh, creating my own vocabulary here, and that may be why. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Launch our semantic skills here. Yes, yeah. Law here, I'm using it in a very broad sense. In a Lacanian framework, Jacques Lacan is a psychoanalyst who reads Paul. His use of the law, I may have used it in the, did I use the word symbolic, the symbolic order? Maybe in the surrounding text. The idea being that the place that History is registered, the place that we have our identity, the place of our values for in the culture, I'm not talking Christian values, uh, is in this symbolic order. The structures of the society, that's where the authorities of the society, the way in which we do identity. My value is in that social structure. I'm an important professor or I'm a cowboy from Texas, or I'm a politician, or I'm a husband. Paul, I assume, is just addressing all of these things and is saying about slave, free, male, female, and Corinthians, he even takes it further. Whatever your station in life, he says, act as if not. In other words, he's not saying if you're married, don't run around on your spouse. That's not what he means. That identity is not binding upon you. And I assume that in Christ, then, that symbolic order is suspended. And the word suspended is a translation of the word that Paul is using in Romans, katargatai. Uh, it's actually the key word that Luther translates it Aufhebung, and then Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel is going to pick up Aufhebung in the Phenomenology of Mind. 
he's talking about a, a very Pauline structure there. It's very, it's a very interesting understanding. And so I think that that term is key. Of course, it's misused by Hegel. Uh, What's the translation? Act as if not. Yeah, uh, I've used the word suspension. Mm-hmm. As if not is actually a different verse. It's from Corinthians. I'm equating the as if not with the katargatai. And it's there in Romans 6 and 7. It's actually the same word that Jesus uses. Uh, He says, well, we should cut down this fig tree. And of course, the fig tree is without fruit, and it's really representative of Israel. But it's actually the word, If I I think it's the same word, katargatai, that Jesus is using. That is, we need to suspend the institutions of Israel. The suspension of it is kind of important. In other words, it's not an abolition. We're not going to get rid of this thing. We're all going to be married or unmarried, male, female, you know, we're going to be of some ethnic origin. It's not that we abolish that. And actually, in some translations, they will, talking about the law, they'll talk about the law as being abolished. But that's not really what Paul is saying that there is a punishing or oppressive aspect to the law, and that's what gets suspended. The oppressive force of the law is suspended. So the law is not abolished. There is still Judaism. There is still the law. The German interpretation, they said Luther's interpretation was? Luther's interpretation is, is Aufhebung, and Hegel picks the Aufhebung up. Lacan attaches a great deal of significance to this, as does Hegel and Zizek. In other words, if you tried to abolish this thing, well, in a sense, that's the problem. Hmm. You'd like to get rid of whatever it is. But you can't undo, you can't get rid of this symbolic order. But you can undo or get rid of the oppressive force of it. And I assume that's what Paul means when he says no longer Jew, nor Greek, no longer male, nor female, no more longer slave, nor free. He's not abolishing those categories, but he's saying they no, they're no longer binding in terms of identity. In sync with Janice's question about that passage, I guess, those lines, the first sentence mentioned LGBTQ, I just wondered what... Um... All I was saying there was, but they keep adding letters to the LGBTQ, and I assume that there are an infinite number of letters that we might add, Mm -hmm. that people are doing identity through sexuality. And all I was saying in in that reference is there's no end to that sort of identity. There's endless variations. That's not true just of sexuality. That's sort of just true of everything. There are infinite variety of ways of doing identity. Yeah, I'm an American, but actually, you understand, I'm from Texas. And, you know, I'm not from just any part of Texas. I'm from the, the northern. I'm from the panhandle. In every little state and every little culture, it's kind of a, a ironic. or, But actually, the, that sort of tribalism is a way of, of doing, doing identity. And it can well, be very arbitrary, too. It can be anything. And so how do you do how do you actually practically work that out then? I mean again you're not going to walk away from being whatever gender you think you are but how do you take away that oppressive whatever that the identity puts upon you? Being in Christ we say that this is my identity. There is an affirmation of who I am in Christ that trumps all of those other modes of doing identity. Uh, I'm going to still speak English. I'm going to still identify, you know, as an an American, but that's not primarily who I am. And of course, what the modes of identity in the world will always do, they're always oppressive identities. They're always what I would call a dualism. This is my definition of a dualism. It's not the way that everybody uses it, but it's identity through difference. It's one thing over and against another. That is, there's good, evil, or, you know, Jew, Greek is the same thing, male, female, that those are pictured almost as ontological categories. And that's what's happening with race. You know, race is a fairly uh, recent in history. 
to do identity through race. It's a, it's a good example of this. I mean, race is, you understand, it's a constructed category. But so, so are all of the, you know, feminine and masculine are constructed too. Not to say that there isn't those genders, but the things that we attach to those genders are very different from culture to culture. The illustration I sometimes use, I'm drinking tea just to show you how arbitrary this can be. But you understand that drinking tea in Japan is a part of Japanese identity. And I don't mean this in a trivial sense, that the tea ceremony is a participation in what they would call ki in spirit. And so some people literally, the tea ceremony might be the very center of who they are. So literally, I think you can do it with nearly anything. And it's always a construct. You know, by saying it's a construct, it's not grounded in any reality other than this symbolic order, other than this thing that as human beings we've created. And so it is always oppressive. It's always a dualism. It's an identity through difference. That is undone in Christ. So we love our enemies. I think that's part of it, because one way we do identity is through our who, who we exclude. That's undone in Christ. We don't do identity through exclusion. I did a lot with Japan. I hope I didn't wear you out on the Japanese stuff. Sometimes it's easier to see these things, and it certainly was for me, uh, outside of our own culture. I think Japan is a mirror image of what's happened in this country, in the United States. And in fact, Japanese academics, have, it's not me saying that, that by mirror image, you know, it's the, they've literally duplicated the nation state, the Western nation state. And the way that we do the nation state, you understand that is a purely constructed identity that we made this stuff up. I know uh, Ken Burns is coming next documentary. He's putting out is on Benjamin Franklin. So, you know, key ideas that we'd have actually Franklin would be behind some of these ideas, kind of the innovation, the creativity, you know, things that we might, the kind of individualism, the kind of, unorthodox. But in Japan, you know, we might project onto people like, in a sense, Japanese have a shared identity. That's not true. Those people before the 1800s, you know, the 1850s, they were tribes and clans. There was no unified. There really wasn't a unified language. I don't know if you experienced this, Jim, but for example, my wife's family, they, uh, my father-in-law, uh, they located in southern Japan, and the dialect there is so strong that it's you, other people in Japan can't understand it. Kagoshima bin, but that was once true all over Japan that the local dialect, and then eventually, of course, the question is where do you go from a dialect to a different language? One of the stories I heard, you know, that the uh, Koreans, you know, they were always real interested in getting Japanese dictionaries. And so they, uh, uh, they kidnapped somebody from Kagoshima and they created a Japanese dictionary based on Kagoshima bin. <laughs> totally useless. <laughs> it doesn't help with stand the point being that Japanese has been standardized <laughs> and with that standardization, then there has been a unified identity. It is a a coercive process. There's a religious identity that has been foisted upon. And religious, that may not sound by religious, you know, Shintoism, Buddhism, that that purposefully was taken up in uh, the Meiji period and after. They, it was continually debated how they're going to use Shukyo or religion. At one point, you know, the Buddhists are vying to, to be primary, the the Shintoists, and the point being that a group of people sitting around a table decided these things and created an identity, quite literally. And so, when we say constructed, it sometimes is it just means quite literally that the, that it was purposefully put in place. Uh, sometimes it may not be that purposeful. It may not, you know, somebody may not have sat down and 
figured all this out. But what is true of Japan is true here, that the national identity and the religious identity in terms of Christianity, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but more and more, I think, just evangelical religion is very much involved in the, the nationalism. What you're saying is kind of, it should be a little bit almost shocking and terrifying to us because uh, what you're saying is, is that everything that we normally would take to just be a given things, you know, as kind of basic as gender, sexuality, language, even, you know, things like morality or economics national sort of uh, identity, you know, ways of doing identity. In other words, the whole thing, it sounds like you're saying is a construct that even morality itself is a human construct that economic, in other words, the basic things of what we would normally take to be fundamental markers of what it means to be a human. Uh, unless I'm misunderstanding you, it sounds like you're saying that it's a, it's a, it's a human construct. And I'm wondering what is it that makes Christianity? How does Christianity escape the thing that you're describing that just runs out through the sort of uh, matrix of what it means to be a human being. Yeah, excellent question. And this is this section is it is on the church and ecclesiology. And so when I say it's a construct, I mean that it, it has no ontological ground. You know, there's nothing of uh, uh, ultimate reality is not connected. But as a Christian, I believe that our identity in Christ has an ontological ground, that this is really who we were created to be. We come to that understanding in the church. And of course, the question you know that I raised here, what, what is the church? But it is the place then where this symbolic order of the culture is suspended, or is supposed to be suspended for us, and we enter into an identity where that does not oppress and bind. So, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at in the culture order, uh, if it's your whiteness, if it's your blackness, if it's your national, if it's feminine, masculine. As I understand what the church is supposed to be about, those things are suspended, and there is an alternative identity in Christ, an alter alternative culture, and of course, culture is not a biblical word, but I think that we can take it and, and use it. it. The word comes from cultus, you know, because actually the religion and culture were very much, much intermixed. You really didn't separate those things out. And that what it means to be enculturated into Christ is that we have a place that those things are not binding upon us. And I think it is necessarily a thing that we have to do corporately. It, it has to be a, something that we do together. I can't, we can't do this on our own. I am woman, I am strong, or I did it my way. No, I, I don't think we can really do that. I think we, got, we need other people to do this. To be enculturated means that we have alternative governmental systems. And so by this, that the, the political structure of the church, the politics of Jesus, is a reversal of the oppressive order of the politics of the world. Of course, this is where I think we have problems in the church, because what happened in a Constantinian Christianity that we mostly are living with is that it adapted those oppressive structures. But I think you can go through in all of the characteristics of a culture should be there in the church. Uh, you know, language, we're going we're gonna to have to use uh, a particular language. But in this instance, the Word of God, who Christ is, the Logos of Christ, trumps the importance. I don't know if you all get the feeling for how important language is to people. Having lived in Japan for 20 years, their language was a key marker of identity. You know, what is a Japanese person? A Japanese person is someone who speaks Japanese. That works fine until you come to my red-haired, blue-eyed children who all are native speakers of the language, but in some way, that should not happen. I mean, <laughs> it does happen, but for Japanese, it's not recognizable. When I was in Yokohama, a teacher grew up 
as an infant in Yokohama. He went to the German private school there, and his parents were white Russians who escaped the revolution. They came, and so he grew up. He learned the classical, the high form of Japanese. He said, Jim, let's go out and have some, uh, I know a German rest, uh, Hungarian goulash. That's their special, special dish. So we went and he ordered in high classical Japanese and the waitress was just dumbfounded. She went and got a fellow worker and she pretended she didn't understand him. She couldn't handle this. Yeah, yeah. This guy ordering in perfect Japanese. She went and got some, you know. That's a common reaction. People who are native speakers of the language, Japanese, they, they can't understand you because you shouldn't be doing this thing. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, it's almost hardwired that, oh, this shouldn't be. Now, this get, Japan is changing because there's so many foreigners that are coming in and speak Japanese. Yeah. My point is that language, culture, food, you know, food, we eat differently in the church. You know, that's partly Paul's point. The Jews ate a particular way, and the early Christians said, we got to eat this way. I mean, some of the Jewish Christians. Paul says, no, we don't have to eat that way. We can eat like the Gentiles eat. And so things that we might think, you know, we kind of imagine are trivial. You understand that was the dividing wall of hostility that Paul is talking about in Ephesians. And so to my mind, these modes of exclusion, these modes of oppression are undone. And so we become truly human in Christ. We become fully human. And the way that we're fully human, I think part of that is that we're incorporated into the body of Christ. And what we mean by the body of Christ is this cosmopolitan, all-inclusive human identity that is not built on exclusion. My, my question was more about the, the how. In other words, so if what you're describing is, is that the ego is a construct that morality then is a, is a construct that if language is in other words, if these things are all, uh, all too human sort of constructs, things that are fundamental to what it is to be human. Pretend I'm an, pretend I'm an agnostic for a minute. Why should I believe your claim that Christianity somehow, you know, evades or, or, um, escapes that situation that it's not just a, a, a one more construct among many, a, just a religious construct, a metaphysical construct. How does it, how does it escape that the, if, if, if the rest of what it means to be human, and I think that you're right, by the way, to one degree or another, you know, means to sort of exist within a kind of identity through difference, then how does Christianity any different? I think that it will make itself shown, this is the New Testament, that they'll know you by your love. And what love is, it's to do away with these structures of identity in which we presume to identify with people of a certain type and not the other type. And so this, this love that breaks down barrier, first of all, between Jew and Gentile, I think that was the archetype for Paul. For him, that was so important because that is the representative of all hostilities. In other words, for, the, for a, a Pharisaical Jew, that, there is no greater hostility than that between Jew and Gentile. But I think by that, he just meant all of these, the tribalisms, nationalisms. I was, I was just trying to tee you up to talk about peace. <laughs> Describing is this sort of a violent uh, alienation or an identity through difference that characterizes human modes of being and knowing, then I would guess that a Christian alternative would have to present itself as, uh, you know, an alternative that maybe doesn't completely, like, like you're saying, uh, escape. You know, we, we say it in human language. We do it in a, a certain time, place, context, and things like this. But that with this being the last class, it's like, well, I would think that peace, I, I really do think that peace would bring some measure of different, you know, different, you know, difference into our account of what it means uh, to be truly fully human. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you're here, man. You, I'm uh, glad. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's it. The structures that we're describing are violent. Yeah, everybody understands that. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Uh, those are violent structures, violent, oppressive structures. And so really what we're doing is, is we're talking, we're describing modes of violence and equating sin with, then with these modes of violence. And salvation is then an undoing of that violent structure. And it is a deep structure. I mean, it ultimately pertains to our own understanding of ourself that we too then are caught up. You know, no, no part of us is free from this antagonism, this dualism, and that's freed up within and without. So that's, you know, the war is abolished the way I put it within and without. So these national structures of violence and these personal structures of violence are undone. And that's the peace of Christ that we really enjoy the body of Christ. We enjoy other people. We, we take joy and love and peace of, of others. Yeah. That's why we're here. I think. Yeah. I mean, if I was, an, if I was an agnostic, that would be compelling. That would be a compelling alternative. And of course, the sad part of this is that the church doesn't always, but we don't need to go there now. But, but I think that is the thing that draws people in the, the love of God. Truly, and I was gonna. I was gonna go there with the church. Oh, go <laughs> because, ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Because, in, in my opinion, there's a difference between the institutional church and the body of Christ. I, I don't even use the term the church very often. I do think it is one of those human structures. It's an institution. I think Christianity is an institution. Again, set up by Constantine, undergoing years of you know misinterpretation and authoritarian abuse. I mean, again, that doesn't mean I don't think that there were people within it who take on the name and and look to follow Christ, but it's not necessarily what I would call official Christianity. Yeah, and that's the uh, opening of this chapter. This story cannot be recorded. This thing cannot be institutionalized. And that's really this whole chapter is that, you know, history from below or there, there is this reality. When I say you can't, you know, that historically you can't record it, that doesn't mean that, that this reality isn't there, but it cannot be, I don't believe, institutionalized, encapsulated, denominated, however you want to say it. And that that process uh, you know, I don't think it destroys the reality of the church. I don't mean that. But I think that what Christ has done is over and against what people do, and uh, just kind of instinctively. Because I think we, we are so tied in to the law, to the symbolic order. So this is a process that we're all in the midst of. We're all extracting ourselves from this morass and seeing it and coming to understand it better. That in and of itself, that journey to, uh, in and of itself, I think, creates fellow travelers, if I can use a good communist term there. There's um, a good uh, parallel in the Old Testament in the first few chapters of Isaiah, for sure, with recognition and the calling out of Israel not living up to its calling. And I think there's a strong parallel maybe today with what we call the church institutionally. In some ways, that's it, it is it's the people of God. But to try to define a, a church within the church that's faithful is more like a remnant of the whole thing rather than to say it's the real thing. The church is big. It's divided. It's unfaithful. Uh, but it's still a church. Does that make sense? It does to me, and, and I to think call it to call it to repentance uh, is uh, the vocation. You know, it was Isaiah's and um, ours too. I would guess. I would say the way that I've done this, and maybe uh, I'm um, departing a little bit. What we call denominations. Somebody made that up, right? I'm a restorationist. I'm a new light seceder, anti-burger Presbyterian. I'm a one cup, uh, no Sunday school, no organ church of Christ. 
I'm a Huguenot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever. In other words, those are clearly man-made structures. And I assume that that's partly what we mean. They don't bind us either. I'm not bound by restorationism, Christian church. I'm not the, the markers of Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, however you want to break it up. Those are not definitive. In other words, that's partly what I think we mean when we say this order is suspended. Man-made institutions don't bind me. And so I don't know that you can call the Methodists to repentance. Methodism as an institution, I'm just pick, picking one. I'm not picking on anybody. In other words, can you call an institution to repentance? It, it ain't going to work because the whole, if the institution repented, it would re repent itself out of existence. But you can call people to your side. They don't have to stop being whatever it is they are because that's not binding on us. It's Jew, Gentile, slave, free. Did our Lord Jesus Christ institute, you know, the ethics of the kingdom? Did he institute peace, love, the sacraments, you know, the Eucharist, baptism, the apostolic church, you know, the New Testament? We could start with those are, I think those are important questions. I think they clearly, you know, yes, I would say yes. What's the proper sort of form that those those institutions take place? Maybe are a different conversation, but those were just questions that were kind of rattling around in my head um, because I'm just, I guess part of me is hesitant to think that the church can float free of any of this or, or in any way, or, or, and I know that's not what you're saying to even ontologically exist, you know, apart from all these other sorts of ways of being human, you know, because we all enter into the church. We're not a ghetto. We're not a whole separate way of, can we really ever escape some sort of identification with what it means to be human and every other? Yeah. And that's part, that's part of my point. The answer is no, that was way, the way I began, you know, no, we're, those, Categories still exist, and I mean, I would say that in regard to the church too. Categories are still there; they're just not mm -hmm. binding, right? Or dividing, right? Yeah. I mean, because the problem yeah. is when they divide. When you say my church is the true church, the way we do it is the only way it can be done, and anyone else who doesn't, blah blah blah. And I hear that a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't remember the flight number that plane went down in the Hudson. I was at a wedding and in Charlotte and there's an aviation museum there you know before the rehearsal I had a few hours I went to the aviation museum and the plane that went in the Hudson had been towed down the interstate somehow mm. to Charlotte one of the survivors was there we had some time to chit chat and he said uh, one thing he remembers besides his final prayer before they hit the water once once they hit the water and they realized they weren't all crushed, he said it was the most beautiful moment of his life. Everybody was helping each other. There were Sikhs. There were different nationalities. There were different levels of economic standing. All that had just dissipated. It just didn't exist just for some minutes. And it was all everybody just helping each other. Yeah, so. yeah. I was just, uh, I watched a documentary last night on Flannery. You all know who Flannery O'Connor was. That's sort of her novels from the documentary, you know, that one, the, the old lady in the story is kind of a wicked old lady. They're in a car crash and, uh, some, some killers come by and just shoot all the family in there holding a gun up. And in that moment, this lit wicked old lady comes to her moment of come to Jesus moment. And, <laughs> and that's sort of Flannery O'Connor. She just repeats that again and again. And of course, I think that the, the point of baptism, the point of the Christian life, the guy that shot her, he said, yeah, if somebody had held a gun to her head all of her life. She probably would have been a pretty good person. <laughs> uh, I think that that's in fact, what coming through the death acceptance, the crucifixion, the, the kind of co coherence that we have, that suddenly things that might have interfered, you know, that have been important, you know, money, sexuality, whatever, 
Well, suddenly that doesn't make any difference in, in a moment of crucifixion, in a moment, the death acceptance of faith. We have to continually be called back to that. And if we realized that we were all one, you know, it's like the, when we realize we are all human, it's not me against the Muslims, me against this person, me against the Blacks. You know, if we really, I mean, for me, that's what really started happening when a lot of things fell away from me is I started realizing that all the people that I'd been told were my enemies or couldn't be trusted or I should fear or shouldn't love, I realized they were just like me. And then if I, if I could just look at that, if I thought of every single person, you know, people that were dropping bombs on in Iraq, those are women who are worried about their children in exactly the same way I would worry about mine. And to, to think of them as people that don't matter and who cares if they die is just, it's just inhuman. It's just unchristlike. And that's what the powers of this world in my mind attempt to do to us, to create those kind of divisions so that we don't love those people and that we can justify hating and doing violence to them. And I think that's a, a key thing. Actually, Janet, Janice, you brought this up. If I would ask, where does evil lie? Does it lie within or without? And I think what I've described, you know, this is the, the split between East and West, the Eastern Church and the Western Church. That with Augustine, he's going to say that with the fall of man, that, you know, the evil's within that it's generated from within human beings. And the Eastern Church is going to resist that Augustinian notion and describe it in a variety of ways, but the idea is that I think this chapter kind of did this for us. That is, we can understand through nationalism, racism, sexism, how it is that people are caught up in a deception. And that deception is itself evil. And we've all lived enough that we've understood, oh, yeah, and I've done that. I've been part of that. Uh, we understand how this thing gets a grip on us. It's not because my free will was taken and I was born uh, uh, totally, totally depraved. Yeah, totally depraved. No, I chose and did things, but the choices that were presented to me and to all of us, were shaped by a particular cultural context and a particular understanding, so that corporately, that's what we're describing, this thing is not generated, and I think that that's the, the significance of the beginning of evil. That's the difference between somebody like Irenaeus and Augusta. Irenaeus, is, and I, this may sound simplistic, but at some level, I think it has to be the case that the evil lies without. In other words, that snake in the garden, what's that snake doing there? Whatever it's doing there, we understand that that was the impetus. And then you go to the next generation, Cain and Abel. Are they born innately, you know, totally depraved? Well, no, Cain is jealous, this is in John, of Abel's righteousness. Uh, and you can go right on down. And I think this is evil. I think that sin and evil are attached in this understanding that it is not generated from within us or that we're totally depraved or that the human mind is, is darkened. But the true freedom of the will is given to us through being what we were created to be. And that is something that's given to us in Christ. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost as simple as saying that, and this is almost like a shocking thing, I think, to say sometimes is that I think that human beings are good, right? I mean, we, I, I didn't learn that. When I was introduced to theology, I, I, didn't, I, I learned that human beings are evil, intrinsically evil, uh, totally depraved, that grace and nature were totally cut off from, from one another, and that grace had to come from some sort of extrinsic some some in some way from outside of what it means to be human but of course i think that's totally false and wrong uh because the, the incarnation you know that god god became human you know i think it's a kind of almost like a revolutionary thing to say in the church today is that 
uh, actually human beings are good and that evil is not who we truly are. You might get right? a little further with them saying human beings are decent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <human> beings are decent. <laughs> not totally depraved. Yeah. But I mean, just, I take your point, though, and I understand. But it's just like maybe something a little more towards, yeah, made good and beautiful and and even glorious to some degree that 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 creation and the image of god is uh, a glorious thing but when it comes to how we tend to choose or how we get entrapped and get caught up and deceived like good would imply that we tend to overcome that easily and i don't think it's true on our own we're decent enough but it's an uphill battle and and I think that's right. What Paul's, what you're saying that we're basically free, but real true freedom is given when you're the bondage is gone. Evil is the ultimate, you know, there's the way of, you know, to describe all this different stuff, but that God is actual, you know, God is the reality. He is the real. And so in as much as we participate in, in God, we're participating in the actual reality of the way things really are. But in as much as we fail to participate in the life of God, we, we participate in a sort of shadow reality or a sort of uh, falseness, you know, but that we're, we're created in God's image. You know, I, I, that's, I think that's clearly the teaching of the scripture that we're, that we're created in God's image and that evil is a departure from our true nature. So that's, that is, a, I would want to say that our true nature is good and even um, oriented towards union with God and that evil is a deception and, and an allurement sort of away from the reality uh, of what we're truly created to be because our Lord Jesus Christ is the truly human one. Matt's describing an Eastern Orthodox understanding, or to state it otherwise, he's describing a non-Augustinian, non-Calvinist understanding. Just a popcorn question about Doing identity in the freedom of Christ, engaging in a new identity, talking to myself, Jim, name three markers, three three things that ignite or continue or empower or promote that living out that identity. Paul, you mentioned one, being with other people, and I'm willing to put that at the top of the list. I'm wondering if anyone has one or two other things to add put in the mix i can't think of a better one like just being with others yeah. do, do what what I, I don't know i'm unclear other things to do or be what i think we were talking about stepping out of these false narratives these false choices to reaching for life we we end up being bound in the very act of like the pursuit of power becomes being possessed by power. The pursuit of wealth becomes an idolatrous succumbing to a poverty of spirit. So I'm just trying to, in my mind, do an about face to all those dynamics and say, okay, I don't know how to say it except doing, doing identity with Christ would involve. Yeah, Jesus says, go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That goes back to everything that Janice was saying. I think that that's what we're, the whole economy that I think that we've been describing in this class is one of sacrifice, whether it's in economics, whether it's one of atonement theory, whether it's one of religious sort of identification or, you know, institutional sort of identification, gender, all these different things, right? Is that we would we would normally just like sacrifice each other. <laughs> my my experience in the last several years of church is like being on a ship and the ship is constantly being tossed by the wave. There's forces like acting on politics is brought up either before the service or after or during politics, sexuality, history, oppression, which I'm sure we, we need to be connected to, or I need to be connected to, and I'm, I'm not denying that. I just feel weary not being able to say, hey, this is the core, you know, that we want to at least point ourselves toward. These other things are important, but it's just exhausting to, to deal with these cultural influences. What I'm hearing is, well, I, I know from experience, and I think we all do from the past couple of years, uh, that 
the identities that people claim are hard to let go of. And they're, they're tied with a string to a string of others identities that, that come along with it. And so it's hard to get together and completely avoid the things that lead to politics <laughs> or the things that lead to uh, a disagreement. And so that it is very wearying. And it is, I think, a part of, uh, of just our moment in history. Uh, and it won't be this intense for forever, I don't think. I don't know. But there's a real sense in which your desire and what this class is describing now as take it more lightly and, and see your identity in Christ. See your identity as a holy nation set apart. And everything that lays claim to you from either direction, left or right, is something that we, as a body of Christ, have to stand apart from in some sense. Don't let everything ride on whatever your definition is there. I mean, the church, the church really is like Noah's Ark, right? It's like it's full of animals and it stinks. And we're all in the midst of a great and terrible storm. You know, but those who take refuge within it will arrive and survive, you know, on the far shore. It's like, in other words, we're we're in the midst of this ark. We're in the midst of uh, all the the animal and we're called to love, you know, everyone that's on the ark. It's like we got to love, you know, from the from the least to the greatest. We got to take care of even the the stuff on the ark that we might not. It may not be our favorite, you know, companions, you know, on the on the journey, but they're. They're on the boat. Nonetheless, it's kind of like a fitting analogy that if we can learn to maybe like love one another, start there. Christ said that they'll know you by your love, you know? So maybe if we can just start there by loving one another, showing each other grace and mercy and forbearance and temperance and things like this. And then maybe eventually people will start to see that there's something compelling there. There's some, there's some different culture there. Maybe I'm a bit, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too optimistic, you know, but I don't think so. It could get trampled or ingest Giardia on the boat still. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. You're almost guaranteed to get seasick along the way. You know? It can be overwhelming, but that's why I'm so glad that we have uh, our fellowship here, our Kinonia, you know, and this is what, to me, this is the ark. This is the boat that we're all on together. We're all from different communions and different traditions and fellowships, but yet those things don't mark us out in such a way that we can't have that kinonia, that we can't have that love for one another and that understanding and forbearance and patience with one another. And I think that if we can somehow live those out in our respective communities more and more, that's the way that we can overcome, you know, Jesus said, take heart, you know, for I've overcome the world. I've overcome all this stuff that uh, we're so burdened by, you know, that's easy for me to say. Part of what I'm hearing Matt say is, uh, we admit that we can be distracted, our attention can be splintered into different directions, but another element of this journey, or look to Christ as the story of Christ as a model, as a reference. I don't know if I could be the devil's advocate here or not, and maybe this is some of the question, Paul, that you had, you asked, who can you have fellowship with, or something to that effect. I think there's a tension there. I mean, I know you guys are, you guys are pretty optimistic. But I don't even think Jesus, <laughs> even Jesus, there was always that tension within, within Israel. I think it's a struggle. One, I don't think there's quieter times coming, and I don't think there was quieter times in the past. Those power structures are, are set up, right? The, the male, female, Jew, Gentile, free slave. Now, I, I, I know we worked through that, and I think the difficulty, and maybe this is, this is too harsh, but... There's some people I just don't want to be around and spend time with, and I'd rather just spend my time with those, probably so those, first of all, in proximity to me, you know, right here in my own neighborhood or, or in my, my local body of Christ uh, people. And even within that group, I have to work through some of those things. So, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting to be a Debbie, Debbie down here. I, I, think it, I think it takes work, and I, I think what we're talking about, we have to do, right? We have to look like Christ, we have to lay down those labels and those things that are power over people uh, rather than, you know, serving under them. I think there's always that tension. So, I guess that's my own battle and struggle. If you look at the apostles and think about how they were all unique, you know, there was no 
this is what an apostle looks like. We're all going to be like Peter. And to me, that's kind of something we, I think we should remember as, as members of the body that I can't expect everyone to look and think just like me and to not be frightened over beliefs that are maybe, you know, something that I just, I can't even imagine at this point, you know? So whether it's, you know, some people would claim that there can't be a Christian Catholic, you know, and I just, I just don't believe that. (laughs) I've known Catholic people who, who love God and who believe Jesus, you know, was, is their savior. And they just, I'm not willing to divide in those ways. This was a couple of elections back, but at a fellowship meal after a, after a Sunday morning, we're, you know, you're talking and it's a noisy room and there's kids running around and all of a sudden, and then one woman mentioned that she voted for Barack Obama. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. No one knew what to say. They, she was fairly new to the church, obviously, because she didn't even know what a heresy it was to admit that she voted for a Democrat. <laughs> it was, you know, and for me, I was just like, I felt really bad for her, but I also felt bad, especially later, thinking about all of our reaction. People were horrified. And to me, that's really sad. And those are the barriers uh, somehow that we have to, we have to bring down. Um, maybe that's where we don't lose our identity as far as I'm a male or I voted Democrat. Those may be, uh, you know, those are secondary issues, right? And how we treat one another in, in Christ. And, and maybe some of the tension that I was thinking of is, is, is that very one, that, that lady there, all of a sudden there's tension in the room and they see her completely different the moment she says that, completely different. I don't. I don't care what they say about how much they love Jesus. I mean, I had a guy I remember. Uh, we used to meet, and I used to think this way, by the way. And we'd meet for coffee, and he says, "Boy, I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and be a Democrat. I'm like, yeah, I don't either. I mean, I used to agree with that device of. Right. Um, I was guilty, too. Yeah. yeah. I think we're all feel the weirdness, Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, you can look at this. It can look pretty dark. And I think we just kind of, we have to find fellowship where we can, you know. So I don't I don't think there's any easy solution other than that. Well, one of my uh, struggles that I see is, is that I think we have to seek fellowship. What I'm witnessing is, in some, is that they have such a frustration with the church uh, whether it be their inst- uh, the the institution or experiences that they've had within whatever uh, you know group local bodies they've been a part of, that they would draw from any fellowship, and you know, and I, I've seen that uh, quite a lot. And I just I feel like even I mean even within the the broken systems that we have, we have to fight and figure ways to keep that fellowship. Uh, and more so than, I mean, I love this group here. This is, I, I look forward to this every week, but I, I feel like I have to find ways to fellowship within, you know, that proximity with, you know, within my neighborhood, within my community that I live in. I, I don't, I mean, that's, that's my, uh, my thought, but I just see a lot of people that completely withdraw and I just, I'm not so sure that's the right thing either. I think there's a danger too and i know i've fallen into this and been very guilty of this that i think that we can fall into the very we can become the very thing that we you know that we hate right in other words we can develop a, a judgmental spirit and we can say oh you know you voted for trump it's like i don't know how to i don't know what to do with you because how could you follow jesus christ and, and be out here it's like one thing to vote for him and it's another thing to be out here sort of waving the trump banner it's like i don't get that you know that's not I'll never understand that, you know, but I would equally not understand the Christian out here waving the, the Joe Biden banner because uh, I believe that both wings belong to the same bird. And that bird is, you know, neoliberalism, you know, and so it's like it's all it's all bad, you know, but all that to say that I, I think that it can it can be a really I think it can cause a lot of despondency um, and depression and, and despair. I don't know. I think that Paul's really helped me with this, you know, that I'm not I'm not the. I'm not like the savior, you know, I'm not the fixer of this, this situation, this impossible situation. That's, uh, you know, it's just so messy, 
I, I'm just totally in, incapable, but maybe I can participate in, in the light and, and in like the and in the peace of Christ and in love of Christ instead of setting myself up in, in a position where, because I, I would be that person if I was in a room and someone raised their hand and said, I voted for Trump, I might, you might hear the pin drop for me because it's like, man, I don't know what to do with that. You know what I mean? Because you're a Christian. So how could you do that? Right. So it's like, I can see myself sitting on the other side of that aisle or whatever you want to call it. And I've definitely been guilty of that, but I'm trying to come out of that because it's like, you know, that person is probably deluded in some way. Anybody who puts their hopes in the political parties in our country, right. is like, is like they're, they're, or if they're wrapped up in that sort of nationalism or idolatry or, or whatever it is, you know, those sort of identity politics and stuff like that. In other words, like, again, I, I meant what I said. It's like, we're called to, to love mercy, you know, and we're called to, to not sacrifice one another, that, that God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. And so like, if I can learn how to live out what this class is about, forging plowshares, if I can forge plowshares, even among, because it's really easy to do in, in theory, right? And in talk. And it's really hard to do it in word and in deed, or, you know, to do it actually in, in deed, right? So to actually forge plowshares with people who are just very, I almost don't want to know what people, like I have friends in church and people that I look up to and stuff like that. And I'm afraid to ask them. Like I have like spiritual fathers and stuff that I'm like, oh my gosh, these people are so Christ-like and I want to be with, be like them. But I'm like afraid to like even enter into like the political discussion with them because I don't want to find out, you know what I mean? Something that I don't want to know, you know what I mean? About like their political commitments. But that should say something to me that like that whatever those, um, that it may be, it's, it's what we were saying earlier. It's like, yeah, I think that that is, I think that it's really evil you know, to be sort of wrapped around in, the, in some other political commitment other than the commitment of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my personal thing. That's my personal belief, you know, but people, that's almost like a ancillary sort of thing, you know, to who we really are in Christ, right? Like, in other words, like this person, whether they're deluded or whether they're mistaken or whatever, yeah, but they're a child of God. Right. Like they, they really are like the, or this person might even be an enemy. So this this class is really hard to actually do. Like this class is super hard to actually live out. Right. Because someone could be a political enemy, an enemy of someone that I consider like an enemy of the good, an enemy of the people, an enemy of justice, an enemy of righteousness or whatever. And I could get super fired up on that. You know what I mean? But it, I think that what I'm called to be, though is it like a servant to them? And that is hard, right? Because I would just want to explain to them why they're wrong and give them the truth and give them this other perspective and all this stuff. And maybe I am at different times, you know, I'm called to do that. But I think that what I'm really called to do at the end of the day is to forge plowshares. And that is going to be a humbling thing. That's going to be probably a thing where I just have to be quiet and listen and not alienate, you know, people through my own zeal or whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's a tough thing to actually live this out. Like David's saying locally, you know, like in my own community, it's, it's, it's hard to be out to dinner with someone. Then you're like, man, I really look up to this couple and they're, um, you know, they're, they're 80 years. They've been walking with Christ for 50 years. And then you find out it's like, oh, they're, they were they're, they, they led the Republican national convention or, or whatever you want to call it. It's like, man, that's kind of, that's kind of disappointing. You, you know what I mean? But, but I guess all that to say that, for me, it's really helped me to remember that I am not called. I don't think that I'm called to to like change the the church or something like this, or to like uh, reform Christianity or something like this. I'm just called to like change myself and reform myself and to become like our Lord Jesus Christ, and then hopefully people will be attracted to that, and then and, and not to me and not to my ideas, but to Christ, and that they'll they'll want to say, "Man, what's this?" What's this peace about? What's this love about? And then maybe they'll ask me questions because they'll see something attractive there and they'll be like, so what do you, you know, what do you think about all this? And, and I've like earned their trust maybe and like their respect, not because of like my strong arguments, but because of some sort of light that they see. Does that make, does that make sense? Like this is a really hard thing to, to actually do though. And I'm, I can't claim to have gotten there, but I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out what it might look like, I guess, basically to not set myself up in the a position of like, almost like the judge. And you know what I mean? Of like saying, Oh, I'm right. Basically like I'm right. And you're wrong. And if you could just be more like me, then everything would be fine. Where it's like, that's not what I think the Lord is calling me to do. Like he's calling me to like serve people right where they're at. And that's hard for me. We have to build, we have to build bridges instead of walls. 
And I think we tend to want to build walls and, and it's challenging. It's hard. I was once a very much of a wall builder and very much I had my ideas about what was good and right and what a good Christian should be. And again, as those things fell away from me, what I found was when things were really beautiful and when I really had meaningful conversations, sometimes with total strangers, it came by building bridges. Uh, once we hi- we hired a realtor, I live in very, very liberal Madison, Wisconsin. I, I swear that this man had never spoken to anyone who wasn't super, super, super liberal. He talked about how he was raised by hippie parents, you know, and, and I was kind of co- actually coming out of a lot of my conservative beliefs, but we had this like two hour conversation and it was just like, he was just amazed. He was amazed to hear that right-wing conservatives weren't monsters, that they weren't ugly, that they weren't, you know, I just, as I tried to answer his questions about, I've been in this circle and this is, this is where their hearts are. And this is what people are thinking. And, and this is, you know, they may be wrong, but this, you know, and those, it was just astounding the kind of bridges you can build when you, you look at each other and go, they're people just like you, you know, they've been deluded. They have certain ideas. They've been brainwashed. They've swallowed certain propaganda but when it comes down to it they're human beings who love their family and just want to live and and want to have a meaningful productive life and relationships and friends and drink nice wine with their friends and have you know fun meals or whatever we're just we're just people most people and that's a merciful i feel like that what you just described is like a merciful way of being right it's like it's not going into it with like a you know like a negative sort of like um despair or or whatever judgment it's like man i like what you said about propaganda is a real thing it's it's and and it's an ideology that people are you know they they learn they go to church their whole lives and they learn they've been taught you know an ideology and, and and a propaganda and like a bad you know heretical theology a lot of times you know what i mean and like they're in other words like they're victims a lot of times of like a bigger thing then it's not like they're set now it's like i think that they're really trying to set out to be christian and, and stuff like that and trying to discover jesus and trying to do the right thing and stuff like that but they we're all we're all kind of like victims of evil in, in that regard you, you know what i mean either we've been having had things happen to us when we were children or or maybe we've been hurt by someone who looks different than us or we've been threatened or something and then we develop you know biases and prejudices and maybe our parents use certain kind of language around our house you know because they grew up in a certain time and place and so in other words like it's really easy to set myself up as the judge and be like, Oh, you know, that's just, you know, if they just would become more intelligent or, you know, more educated or whatever, and or more Christian or more like me, you know, then they would, they would be all right. But it's what Janice was just describing is like a merciful attitude of saying, whenever I meet someone who's very different from me like that to say, you know, maybe they, maybe they love this country and they think that, you know, that, that president Trump is gonna, is gonna, maybe they're scared maybe they're they're very fearful of the of like foreigners and things like this or they're fearful economically or whatever because of the things that they've been taught and i'm not trying to abdicate them of any type of responsibility or anything like that and by the way just to go back to our other argument earlier i'm not a pelagian i think that we need our lord jesus christ in order to become good so i just want to make that clear too but i do think that having that merciful attitude of saying i get it you know you you, you know it's not like i don't think that most people are trying to like be like sort of like antichrists or something like this you know it's like they're just these people who go to church and they're older and they've been doing this their whole life a certain way and then they teach their kids and their grandkids and it's an uphill battle maybe if they see something i I like everything you said except when you said that older part Uh oh yeah (laughs) i'm always convicted by elder zosima you know elder zosima and the brothers karamazov he talks about mutual responsibility for one another and he says you know Maybe if I was more like Christ, my local community would be better. Maybe if I was more like Jesus Christ, people would be better. They would love the good. They would love, period. They would love peace. And so maybe it's like my failure that people, in other words, it's, I guess he's kind of given us a way to be humble, you know, and, and say, be better, do better. And maybe the people around us will become better. I know Paul's made me better. I know you guys have made me better. So thank you. I mean that. It's a real helpful handle to recognize the path of Christ, just living his father's will and being crucified outside the city as a result. 
and then if we as as the new Israel or um, the fulfillment of Israel uh, as the body of Christ are called to live in the same the same exact world that crucified Christ, it's an attractive thing for us to let all these other identities fall away and walk the path that he walked. Uh, I guess it's true that while it might be an attractive thing, um, hopefully to some who have eyes to see and ears to hear as we follow the path and seek to imitate him, of course, others will be baffled by it and lose us, so uh, reject us. And so, but that's the path we're on. And that's why it's a a lonely path of uh, like what Paul called it, the homeless, homelessness uh, status of Christians (laughs) is uh, we're without a nation in the world. We're without a country in the world. We're without a of, of people except for those who are being crucified day by day. But there's fellowship and there's comfort and there's solace in that. I was watching this, uh, the Ken Burns, they, they haven't put out the documentary, but uh, Benjamin Franklin was kind of one of the original to improve himself. And so he created a chart and he came up with uh, 12 virtues. He got through, I, you know, he did this for a long time and he was showing his friends. He said, you know, look how good I've, you know, I've really improved in my 12, my 12 virtues. And one of them said, you know, Ben, I, th- I think you're, you need to add one more virtue and that's <laughs> humility. <laughs> he said, oh, you know, and he said, now that's the hardest one because he said, I could be so proud of my humility. <laughs> We'll see everybody next week then. Okay. Bye. All right. Good night. See you guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.